0: Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights.
1: Freedom of uh, conscience.
0: Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen.
2: You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Nico Perino, and I am the host of So to Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I'm excited this week because our candid conversation is a look back at the spring 2017 semester on campus. What happened in the world of free speech on campus? What were the major free speech victories? Maybe some... Challenges that were faced for free speech advocates on campus, and what are some of the developing trends? And to help me in answering these questions, I have three of my distinguished colleagues at FIRE joining me. Um, All three of them should be familiar to our listeners, they've been on the podcast before. I have Our returning guest, Will Creeley, he is FIRE's Vice President of Legal and Public Advocacy. Will, thanks for coming on the show. Nico, it is my absolute pleasure. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. I also have Samantha Harris, who is the Vice President of Policy Research here at FIRE. Hi, Sam.
0: Hi, Nico. Thanks for having me.
2: And I have Joe Cohn, who is FIRE's Legislative and Policy Director. Joe, thanks for being here. Thanks, Nico. So I want to start by looking at a developing trend or a potential Developing trend by asking about the heckler's veto, or um, as some might refer to it as mob censorship. Back in 2014, Fire President and CEO Greg Lukianoff named the year the year of the heckler. I want to start by asking: Is 2017 now the new year of the heckler? And Sam, I want to ask you, by way of starting, what is a heckler's veto?
0: Well. The term really sort of has two usages. Um, in the law, a heckler's veto is when uh, the government or you know an agency of the state, a state university, um, is forced to shut down or cancel a speech or uh, prevent a speaker from speaking out because of the fear of violence. Um, the quintessential quote on this, uh, the heckler's veto from the Supreme Court is that speech can't be banned or financially burdened because it might be unpopular with bottle throwers. But um, in common parlance, the term really refers to any time um, that people shout down a speaker, that a speaker is prevented from expressing him or herself um, because um, either one person or a crowd of people shouts that person down. I mean, your your right to free speech really doesn't extend to um, shutting down another speaker. Um, so mob censorship and the heckler's veto, I think, in common parlance, and I would love to hear any of my colleagues weigh in on this. I think they've come to mean the same thing in common parlance, even though the heckler's veto does have sort of a more technical meaning at law.
2: Yeah. So one of the reasons we're talking about the heckler's veto right now and asking whether 2017 is the new year of the heckler is because there were a couple events that happened, most notably in the spring semester. One in February, Milo Yiannopoulos tried to give a speech at um, Berkeley, and there was a mob that engaged in violence outside, preventing him from ever speaking. In March, Charles Murray, who's a sociologist with the American Enterprise Institute, was speaking on campus related to Trump's victory in the presidential election. But because he had he wrote this book back in the 90s called The Bell Curve that dealed with racial race and intelligence, um, some students didn't want him to speak there. And actually, after he got done speaking and was leaving the... Um, room that he was speaking in with the moderator, the moderator was attacked. And then we had Heather McDonald in April, who was speaking at Claremont McKenna University and got through most of her speech before the police stepped in and said it was unsafe after a group of protesters surrounded the building and were banging on windows. And this has, this has caused quite the public dialogue about this issue. Will, you've been doing this for a long time. Is this new for you? Well, yes and no. No.
1: Uh... I was reminded earlier this semester of some of the work we did uh with regard to Bill Ayers, uh current education policy expert, uh and former member
2: of the Weather Underground. Which uh, was sort of a weather uh radical left-wing group from the sixties or seventies. That's right. That uh that, that uh used explosives uh to make
1: points. <laughs> and uh actually uh Ayers kind of re-entered the public consciousness uh, in 2007-2008 as, I think, an acquaintance, if I remember correctly, of uh, then-Senator and now-former-President Barack Obama. And Ayers' involvement uh, with the weather underground uh, is obviously still a a point of major controversy. And his appearances on campuses... uh, were flashpoints for uh, protests, and in a few instances, uh, one, if I remember, most notably at University of Wyoming, uh, threats of violence, mm-hmm. and the University of Wyoming uh, actually canceled his speech citing uh, the possibility of, uh, of a violent response from those who did not want him uh, to be there. And Ayers uh, went to court and got a a preliminary injunction, as I recall, uh, to be allowed to to continue with his speech. I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. It's been eight years now. Um, So in that sense, it's not new, right? Threats of violence to prevent people you don't want to hear on campus uh, are unfortunately more common than one might think. But what is new and I think troubling is just the the intensity and frequency of these, uh, of these threats in recent months, that's been deeply depressing to me and I think many of us here at FIRE.
2: Yeah. One of the things that I was unaware of, and I, we recently interviewed uh, Tyler Cowen, who's an economist at the Mercatus Institute, over or the Mercatus Center, I believe is the name, at at George Mason University, he wrote a book called The Complacent Class. And I don't know by the time this podcast comes out, if our interview with him will have come out. But he was talking about how in one year in the 1970s, there was something like 2,500 bombings or acts of violence on behalf of uh, protesters. And I've heard this from other people too in talking about the campus uproars of the past couple of years is that we forget how toxic, maybe toxic isn't the right word, but how tense campuses were in the 60s and 70s. And I think we've had a period of relative calm in the intervening years um, that has only you know, sort of escalated maybe since 2013, when Greg noted in, in his book Freedom from Speech, the beginning of this new campus activism period, uh, starting with the protesting of Ray Kelly at Brown University. Joe, what do you make of this situation?
3: Well, I think it's easy to forget that censorship has been with us since people were able to speak. There's always been someone who's wanted whoever's speaking to shut up, uh, and we we've all felt that that way. And people have all uh, always been willing to use power when they've had it uh, to
2: stifle people with with which they disagree. Yeah, Will, you spoke about how previous uses of violence on behalf of the Weather Underground was used as a justification to deny Bill Ayers the right to speak. Uh, and I believe you, you said in Wyoming. In this instance, that was actually the justification used recent in a recent campus disinvitation attempt uh, by DePaul University in rescinding the invitation to Gavin McGinnis, who is a co-founder of Vice Media and sort of a member of the alt right. He started a group called the Alt Knights, which seems uh, is purported to protect members of the alt right from violence on behalf of those with whom they disagree and. Uh, In denying the invitation for Gavin McGinnis to speak on campus, uh, the DePaul College Republicans invited him. Uh, The president of DePaul said that after clashes outside of Gavin McGinnis' February event at New York University, McGinnis told his followers, we're the only ones fighting these guys and I want you to fight them too. It's fun when they go low, go lower. Mace them back, throw bricks at their head. Let's destroy them. We've been doing it a while now, and I got to say it's really invigorating. Even when you lose, you feel great about yourself. Now, I should say that the college Republicans and Gavin McGinnis himself dispute that characterization of McGinnis's comments, noting that um, McGinnis was making those comments in the context of self-defense But is this a justifiable excuse for denying Gavin McGinnis the right to speak on campus if he is invited by a student group, recognizing, of course, that DePaul is a private university, not bound by the First Amendment, but has some very strong free speech promises?
1: Well, Nico, there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) First of all... (laughs) This is a
2: difficult question. That's why I want to
1: think it through. It's a good question. First of all, as you very uh, usefully note... Uh, DePaul is, of course, private uh, and thus not bound by the First Amendment. It's also really important, I think, to note that DePaul right now may have the uh, lead in the clubhouse for being the worst school for free speech in the entire country. So I, it's, a, I, it's a close race. It's a, a close few. race. It's, there's some but strong but, contenders. But yeah, they
3: seem to be breaking from the pack yeah. on you know, um, the last Yeah, one match. of
0: our colleagues wrote – I love this line from – we wrote a, a – My colleague Adam Goldstein wrote a piece on this uh, last week, and he said that after, you know, we asked rhetorically whether DePaul was America's worst school for free speech, he wrote, this month, DePaul has responded with the policy equivalent of, hold my beer. (laughs) (laughs) And in the context
2: he's talking about there, DePaul has the speaker review policy that more or less says that if you are not a member of the faculty or administration, you want to invite a speaker to campus, it needs to go through the administration, and they need to approve the speaker, uh, After the administration has investigated whether that speaker might incite violence on campus.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, my answer to whether this is a a legitimate justification for preventing someone from speaking, my answer would be no. I mean, he clearly is talking about the context in which you are um, finding yourselves on the receiving end of violence. However, uh, you know. It is, in fact, a closer call than some of the speech we deal with. And I think I would be more inclined to be at least sympathetic to perhaps the good intentions of the university if it weren't DePaul.
2: Yeah. So some background on DePaul for our listeners here. They uh, the college Republicans invited Milo Yiannopoulos to campus last year. The administration, after putting them through the student group through a lot of bureaucratic red tape, required that the student group hire a number of security guards through the administration to prevent violence from happening at the event. Uh, there were some hecklers at the event, went on stage, took Milo Yiannopoulos' microphone away from him, started jabbing it in its face, and purportedly, uh, according to some news reports, the administration told the security to stand down, thus ending the event. Uh, DePaul also prevented and banned uh, Ben Shapiro, noted uh, conservative commentator, from even appearing on campus. So I might understand that if I take three steps forward, you will the time to have me arrested? If you create a problem and you will not, you know, leave the campus, yes. Okay, so, so DePaul has a bit of an I issue with speakers on right campus, right campus right now. Yeah. And I'm going to turn it over to Will to sort of expand on that.
1: Yeah, so DePaul is a bad actor, right? And setting that aside for a second, I, I want to agree with Sam. Uh, I think that it's questionable. Uh, two doctrines or two cases come to mind uh, thinking about this in terms of... Um, First Amendment case law, again, recognizing that DePaul's private, but using these cases as kind of a uh, a lodestar or a benchmark by which to analyze their response here. Uh, first is 1972's Healy v. James, a Supreme Court case uh, involving what was then Central Connecticut State College. Uh, the president uh, of Central Connecticut State College had denied uh, recognition to a, a group, uh, a chapter of students uh, for a democratic society, uh, citing... Uh, the propensity or involvement of other uh, SDS chapters at other campuses uh, to be involved with violence, uh, and the court rejected that uh, that invocation of violent acts elsewhere, uh, saying that you really have to kind of deal with the here and now, uh, and that speculation on that front is is not uh, is not enough. Um, so that somewhat tracks the facts here. The other point, uh, of course, has to do with incitement. Uh, In Brandenburg v. Ohio, 1969, court uh, said that speech loses First Amendment protection uh, when it is "quote directed to inciting imminent lawless action and is likely to produce such action." Uh, McGinnis's comments here, we could parse them more closely, but I don't think they meet the very high bar uh, for incitement. So I, I. you know, understand that uh, what DePaul is trying to do here, I just don't think it's it's justifiable. And then just as a bonus point, if I may get it in, uh, I've mentioned being depressed by the heckler's veto. I want to say I'm equally and maybe even more depressed by the romanticization of violence uh, by kind of both ideological poles here. The idea that the way to solve things politically is to show up and have a street fight and that there's something... Yeah cool or uh, uh, exciting or interesting about that. Well, I mean, that's just anchor Anchorman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's escalating quickly and I don't like it. I don't like it at all.
2: Well, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've seen some people note on Twitter that the difference between a free society and an unfree society is that in a free society, we solve our disputes with words and not with violence. You know, you see violence happening in unfree societies. You saw this um, in, in this period before World War Two, you see, you saw this in Rwanda, um, you saw this in many other unfree countries where you know you, you resort to violence in order to solve disputes, and it, it runs contrary to the Enlightenment value of free and open inquiry and discussion. And, and I'm afraid we're losing some of that. I want to end this this discussion about DePaul here by um, pointing out that Adam Goldstein, who wrote our blog post at thefire.org about the situation, closed it by pointing out that DePaul's Free speech misdeeds go all the way back to January 15th, 1988, when the DePaulia reported that they banned a speaker from the National Organization of Women from coming on campus. The report from the DePaulia says, to date, the Student Speakers Bureau has invited only author James Baldwin to the campus. Eleanor Smeal, former national director of the National Organization of Women, was invited to speak by the now defunct Speaker Series in April of 1988. University officials later overturned the invitation causing national our interns weren't alive in 1988. <laughs> I wasn't alive in 1988 uh, so they've got a long long history of free speech misdeeds despite repeated promises both in their policy and in their um, in their public communications that they respect free speech for their students and for their student organizations. I want to turn now to a, a maybe a little bit more... Clear-cut case involving uh, CUNY, uh, City of University uh, City University of New York, and their invitation, their School of Public Health invitation to Linda Sarsour to speak at the commencement address on June first. Today is May thirtieth. Uh, Linda Sarsour is a co-organizer of the National Women's March on Washington and a former executive director of the Arab American Association of New York, and. Um, You know, very vocal advocate for um, the rights of Palestinians and also for Arab Americans. And some um, other groups are protesting her speaking at at the School of Public Health commencement ceremony. Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, who we've already spoken about, uh, sort of right-wing alt-right provocateur, said at a recent rally outside CUNY, last week, that Linda Sarsour is a Sharia-loving, terrorist-embracing, Jew-hating, ticking time bomb of progressive horror. And at this rally, presumably most of the people there and through reports... So uh, it seems
3: like he was pretty reserved in
2: that. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us how you really feel. Well, you know, so it's interesting that he spoke at a rally that seeked to disinvite Linda Sarsour from speaking on campus or speaking at the commencement ceremony, given that he himself has been the subject of a lot of disinvitation attempts and successful disinvitation attempts on campus. I should note that when the New York Times, and I'm reading from a New York Times article right now, reached out to him from comment, uh, he did say that unlike some of the other speakers, I don't want Sarsour canceled. I want as many people as possible to hear her odious thoughts. That doesn't mean I can't explain why she is dangerous and wrong. So I think he sort of saved himself there. But the New York Times report on this points out some interesting things. It says, of course, that the controversy over Ms. Sarsour's appearance is the latest dispute in a heated national dialogue over free speech on university campuses. Um, But in this instance, the New York Times reports, the roles have been a bit reversed. Other protests have largely pitted left-wing students against conservative speakers like Mr. Yiannopoulos, Ann Coulter, Gavin McGinnis, and Charles Murray. This time, conservatives are leading the charge against Ms. Sarsour. And they, um, they note that the CUNY Chancellor James uh, Milliken has defended Sarsour's appearance on campus, so that's a good thing. Uh, But they also quote Fred Smith Jr., a constitutional scholar and assistant professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Law, who said that the controversy was a reminder of the bipartisan nature of the outcry over free speech issues. Uh, he, he says in the, the report, there are a few people who have been very effective in branding the left at shutting down free speech, but the moment they are confronted with leftist speech they don't like, they are equally outraged and poised to suppress that speech. He says, he continues, I don't think that's the answer for either side. The more you try to suppress speech, the more the ideas of the suppressed speaker become salient to more people. It makes the person more well-known and attracts more people to those ideas. Joe, I think I know your answer here, but do you agree? With Mr. Smith there, I mean, I, I largely, you know,
3: agree with that. Uh, you know, you censorship is not a partisan issue. People censor who they disagree with, and uh, you know, there are very few examples where someone was, you know, where someone said, you know, I agree with everything you said, but I just wish you didn't say it. Um, you know, and we need to stop thinking about these issues in partisan uh, terms, and instead get to the point where we're. Vigorously defending the people with whom we disagree with the most, because that's when it's about principle as opposed to politics. And you know, I have those conversations with with lawmakers all of the time.
1: Yeah, I want to jump in here. Uh, there's a good article by Brendan O'Neill uh, over at Spiked Online that was sent around the office listserv about five minutes before we started recording uh, today, and he writes. Um, Uh, the alt-right is allergic to freedom. Uh, It wants Sarser silenced, BDS initiatives banned, Black Lives Matter registered as a terrorist group, anti-PC, do me a favor, they're PC to their core. And I think the point that he's illustrating uh, there or arguing in favor of is just, Exactly as Joe describes it. Everybody's got speech they don't like and everybody wants to uh, tell somebody else to shut up. As I've been telling folks uh, I've talked to across the country, I'm the father of a two-year-old. And I can tell you that the, the instinct to censor starts very young, right? You say, Daddy shh, be quiet. You know, so I've I've heard that before and I know uh,
3: that it's very human. I imagine there are times that you wish that there would be more quiet in your household too.
1: No comment. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I think this one is just kind of a classic down the line uh, attempt at at, uh, disinviting a speaker because of his or her controversial views and it's useful in the uh, way that it illustrates the fact that uh, these things come and and go. You know, that that they're almost cyclical. Uh, As O'Neill points out, there's a kind of a, a codependency. You need Folks to protest uh, to, to yeah. give your view uh, some traction. So
2: we we should note here that Fire tracks a lot of these disinvitation attempts on our disinvitation web uh, website database. If you go to the Fire.org, you can find that in the resources section. And one of the things that's notable about the database is that the split between disinvitation attempts is is pretty pretty even between disinvitation attempts from those on the right and disinvitation attempts from those on the left. Now, if you read headlines, you know, you might think, as the New York Times report, that all censorship attempts on campus come from the quote-unquote left. But that's not our experience here at FIRE, is it, Sam?
0: No, not at all. Um, And I think it illustrates the point that everyone needs to be concerned about free speech. I mean, one of the big challenges we face here at FIRE is – you know, whoever's speech we are defending, um, we get pushback from other people about, oh, how can you defend that speech? And we always try to explain, well, look, next time it will be your speech. And I think that um in the case of Linda Sarsour, speech on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is perhaps the best illustration of this. Because if you look at this disinvitation database you just mentioned, it is rife with examples of disinvitations and shoutdowns of speakers, both from the pro-Israeli and the pro-Palestinian standpoint. Um, So, you know, we're always trying to convince people of this, but it's very difficult. I mean, as Will said, the impulse to censor speech that one disagrees with is very strong, and you really have to somehow convince people to fight against that very natural instinct to favor speech they agree with and disfavor speech they disagree with. There was
1: yeah. a cool day in the office earlier this semester. One of the highlights again, of a pretty pretty dark and depressing semester where uh, Fire's work was praised uh, both in the socialist worker and on National Review Online. <laughs> and, uh, and what I think, again, that, that goes to show is that uh, consistency counts when it comes to free speech, right? You have to stand up. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, the socialist worker was talking about a case uh, also in New York uh, at Fordham University, also involving the Israeli-Palestine question, where uh, a chapter of uh, prospective s- chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine had been uh, rejected by uh, Fordham uh, on the basis that they were too... Um, divisive. The group's message was just too too much for Fordham University, which also promises students free speech. So yeah, uh, what comes around goes
3: around. You know, so much of the focus on this issue is on the partisan aspects of how these individual cases play out. And I think it's a little bit saddened that we had to even coin a phrase like disinvitation season that it's becoming, you know, a, a, a par for the course. But I also think it's a a really positive thing that we're seeing so many students who are being active about engaging in politics as opposed to being passive i wish they weren't taking that activism and using it at to be censors in these in in these instances but i think that we have an easier conversation to have to convince someone to get off the couch and stop being apathetic and be engaged is the harder thing to convince someone that their form of engagement uh, has to play by some amount of legal rules is a smaller lift. So I actually think that that while it's it, it's it's disappointing that there is so much uh, of this mob censorship going on, you know, I, I see potential here for all of us to be better by having a generation that is engaged.
1: Last point on that, Mike Pence, the vice president. Yep, of the I United want to States. talk about that next. Right at Notre Dame, he's given the commencement address, and what you saw. Uh, where a number of students uh, walk out during the uh, uh, commencement address from the vice president. And as Jacob Levy and, and others have noted, uh, Jacob Levy writing for the Chronicle this past week, uh, that kind of walking out uh, is far better than shouting down, that it's, a, it's a, an act of uh, speech that does not disrupt uh, the vice president's address. It allows everybody both to hear uh, the address, and also uh, Vice President Pence to continue giving the address, but also registers uh, the expressive uh, uh, component that the students sought to uh, by by making that symbolic action. And uh, that maybe is an example of what you're talking about, Joe, where they're engaged, uh, but they're not engaging in a way that censors others. They're engaging in a way that
2: that makes their own vo- uh, voice heard. Yeah, we, we wrote about this on our website, uh, Adam Steinbaugh, who works in our individual rights defense program. And Adam wrote that a number of graduating students quietly walked out when Vice President Pence began speaking, engaging in peaceful protest without substantially disrupting a speaker or preventing a willing audience from listening. Although some have criticized whether the student's response was appropriate, this was quite clearly a more speech response to a speaker they found objectionable. The protest didn't derive its power from reducing speech, but from adding a visual element to it. Uh, We should also note, oh yeah, Sam, jump in.
0: I do want to jump in. I mean, I think that this is really important to say, well, at least it is to me that, you know, 100% protest, more speech. At the same time, on a personal level, I do think that we'd all be better off if everyone were a little bit more willing to listen to points of view they disagreed with. And that's something that, um, you know, I hope that will be fostered on campus a little bit more in the years to come, because I think that while these students did the right thing and expressed themselves in a constructive way, I think this the sort of, from both sides, the demonizing of people with whom one disagrees to the point where, you know, we would rather walk out of a speech than listen to someone we disagree with, um, does contribute to the climate in which some of these other things happen. So I I feel like I can't let this episode pass without sort of sharing my own view that I think we would all be a little bit better off if we were more willing to listen. Yeah,
2: and Mike Pence sort of addressed this in his comments at the commencement ceremony. You know, if
1: the emanations of free speech were charted on a map like infrared heat signatures, one would hope that universities would be the hottest places,
2: red and purple with dispute, not dark blue and white, frozen in decant orthodoxy and intellectual stasis. So you're talking here about like what is the job of a good intellectual or, a, you know, a good per- participant in the public debate, the idea that, you know, not everyone in our country is going to agree with each other, but we live in a democracy and in order to be able to work through our disputes, we need to be able to listen to others with whom we disagree and hopefully find some common ground. Joe, did you want to jump in here? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's an important
3: point, but
2: I also don't think that students are the only ones
3: having this problem. I mean, we're polarized in all of our politics and the electoral politics, and we're also polarized, you know, in the halls of government as well with not a tremendous amount of willingness to try to find the middle grounds. Uh, So, you know, this is not happening in a vacuum. And I think that, uh, that, that students uh, should be listening to each other, but we all need to be listening to each other. And, uh, and and the first way we can do this is rather than talk about who we don't think is doing that, to ourselves, hold ourselves accountable and make sure that we are, 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 are living uh, under those rules and principles, uh, you know, police your own house first. Yeah, will.
1: Yeah, let me jump in. I I agree with Sam's good point, and and certainly Joe's. Um, I do want to quote from from Jacob Levy here, and he's the uh, the head of the Niskanen Center and a professor at McGill, and he's writing about uh, Pence at at Notre Dame. He makes what I thought was a very good point about uh, being clear that this was more speech and the importance of doing that. First of all, he he makes the point uh, that a commencement address is, is something different than a, a guest lecture yes. or an invited stu- uh, speaker to a student group, and I think that's a, a fair and, and good point. But uh, if I may just read out uh, a passage here from his from his thoughtful piece. He says, likewise, when thoughtful, civil, quiet protesters get tarred with the same... Quote, safe space snowflake brush as their violent, disruptive, or censorious counterparts, the crucial distinction between engaging in debate and suppressing it gets weakened. Students are smart enough to notice a constantly shifting standard and to realize when apparent statements of principle are opportunistically jettisoned. If the de facto operative standard is, quote, any form of objecting to any conservative speaker is bad and will bring the same criticisms, unquote, protesters won't have reason to believe any principled arguments about better and worse kinds of protest and things will get very much worse. I think that's a really important Point uh, that you know, in in order to uh, communicate the importance and necessity of free speech to folks, we have to be as nuanced as the situation demands, and that's why I really liked uh, Adam Steinball's good blog on on our site. Uh, and and you know, it may be easier to say, oh, look at those uh, students—they can't even stand to hear this thing. But I do want to recognize the means uh, with which they registered their feelings, uh, especially in contrast to some that we've seen earlier this semester.
2: Yeah, and I you know, I wish. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence was a little bit n- more nuanced in his commencement address because he, he, he praised Notre Dame in the course of talking about how free speech is important on campus. He said, uh, referring to the earlier map he was talking about where infrared heat signatures would signify campuses to be the most vibrant place for free speech.
1: If such a map were to exist, Notre Dame would burn bright with the glow of vibrant discussion. This university is a vanguard of freedom of expression. And the free exchange of ideas at a time, sadly, when free speech and civility are waning on campuses across America.
2: What he fails to note there is that Notre Dame is a red light institution and fire spotlight database. Uh, This means that it holds at least one policy that... Uh, substantially infringes upon students' free speech rights. Uh, I note again, Notre Dame is a private university but promises its students' free speech rights. Uh, nonetheless, it has a policy prohibiting students from using the internet to view, quote, offensive material. Sam, I'm going to let you drop, jump in here because you are vice president of policy research. Um, how did Mike Pence go wrong here?
0: Well, I think that it is important to say, first of all, that, you know, what universities do in policy and what they do in practice is sometimes different. Um, And it is perhaps, you know, possible that the climate for free speech on Notre Dame's campus is, in fact, a positive one, even though they maintain this policy. The problem is that as long as a policy is on the books, students really don't have the right to free speech because it can be enforced at any time. And if we have learned anything about university administrations over the years is that they're often arbitrary. Um, and if you have a you policy like this so on long. the <laughs> books, um, it'll be enforced uh, you know, unevenly to, to suppress speech the university does And that's like. an
2: important point, Sam, because that's pushback we get a lot about our spotlight database. Right. It's like, well, how can X school be a green light school if it's done... You know a b and c things
0: right well and we make uh, we make very uh clear that there is a distinction um and that our spotlight database is based on schools written policies and there are a few reasons for this one is that uh we simply don't have access to the information about what the, the climate for free speech is like on the ground um and that's actually also a much more subjective thing I mean it's mm-hmm. it's not easy, but one can look objectively at the policies that a university maintains regarding free speech and draw some conclusions about the state of free speech on campus, at least with regard to how the university regulates its students' free speech rights. What it's like to be a student there um, and how comfortable students feel speaking out um, is a much more subjective thing. Um, And so, There are a number of reasons that drawing this distinction works well, even though, as you say, it's something we've gotten pushback for. One is that we have found that where a school does have a green light, that it's much easier – to work with that school, I mean, it's a, that's a positive thing. That's something schools want to maintain. So at our Greenlight schools, we've found that if there is a free speech controversy on the ground, even if it doesn't relate to the policies that we are citing in Spotlight, um, you know, that affects an administration's and a university's sort of sense of itself. I um, if we put a university out there as a place that really respects free speech, um, there's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there, uh, you know, in, in that— and we're
2: often working with the universities to reform policies to bring it in line with right, you know, our Greenlight exactly. standards. Right,
0: um, And then, you know, know, the issue with the red light school that may be, um, you know, protective of free speech in practice is that, A, written policies have a chilling effect. So you never know, even if it seems like students are expressing themselves freely on campus, you never know how much speech simply isn't taking place because people have read those policies and fear punishment. I mean, the fear of punishment is very powerful deterrent against speaking out. And that's something that we always – point out, you know, the chilling effect. We just don't know what we can't hear.
3: Yeah. Joe? Can we touch base real quickly about the vice president's comments, though? Because I think it's important to also emphasize that while he was wrong about the state of free speech on Notre Dame's campus with respect to the written policies, it's still a really powerful statement for a sitting vice president to make to in the time that he has in this, uh, you know, uh, in the spotlight of a commencement speak to talk about free speech on campus and why it's important. And I think that uh, it's something that we've praised in the past when when President you. Obama did it as well. No,
2: I, I don't agree that you, when you become students at colleges, have to be coddled and protected from different points of view.
3: Um, because it's important that, that our uh, elected officials, you know, all the way up, you know, from... From in uh, in the halls of Congress, in the White House, in the Vice President's office, and down you know at local levels and in state levels, recognize that there are really important stakes here when we stop valuing free speech on campus, and that they can do a lot to turn this around.
1: Yeah, I fully agree, Joe. And it, I think it's if I recall correctly. Uh, Pence's people afterwards, when asked about the students walking out, said something to the effect of the vice president addressed free speech in his in his talk. So they recognized that uh, the response uh, was more expressive activity. And I, I completely agree with your point. We should, uh, you know, <laughs> the awkwardness of citing Notre Dame is a sterling example, uh, aside, uh,
3: the sentiment is right on. You know, there, there's no politician who we won't, you know, uh, critique uh, and evaluate what they say on our issues to make sure they're accurate and have a and, 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 and levy criticism where it's appropriate and praise where it is as as well um, you know i of course wish he did get it right about notre dame's policies too because it was a good opportunity to talk about to about speech codes um, but it really did very nicely put this issue again on the map for us too
0: i think that You know, one of our sort of unofficial mottos here at FIRE, at least within our policy reform department where I am, is that we don't want perfect to be the enemy of good. And so I want to, you know, if we're wrapping up, you know, what we're saying here about Notre Dame and Pence, I want to make sure that I get on the record saying that I do think, you know, as much as, yes, they do have a bad policy on the books, I do think the students deserve praise. I mean, Mike Pence is a very polarizing figure. I can only assume that the reaction would not have been the same on, on every campus. Former and
2: that, governor of Indiana, of course, where Notre right. Dame is located. Um, Congress, so,
0: but. you know, while we've been pointing out that, yes, that it doesn't paint a completely accurate picture of the state of free speech on Notre Dame's campus, I do think that the praise is warranted, particularly of the students um, for responding with more speech.
2: Yeah, and we should know, we don't know if Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, knows about our spotlight rating system.
1: Yeah, that's true. And if anybody from Notre Dame is listening right now, students or faculty or administrators, please contact us. I'm will at thefire.org, and I'm standing by to help you work on And Mr. On Vice President,
2: codes. if you're listening now, <laughs> uh, feel
3: free to contact us so that we can work on Speech Goes Together,
2: too. Mm-hmm. So I want to turn now. We've been talking Wishful about Wishful thinking, but, uh, <laughs> you know, a boy Joe, can dream.
1: Joe's waiting by his phone. Hey, so to speak, has juice. People listen. So yeah. They, uh, yeah. Who
2: knows? Maybe Mike Pence. But I do want to turn to the halls of Congress um, and to the halls of state legislatures to talk about some significant victories, Joe, that you and your team have had there in the past couple of months. Most notably in Tennessee, where, as our press release noted on May 10th, on May 9th, the Tennessee governor, um, Bill Haslam, signed a comprehensive campus free speech bill into law. Can you tell us a little bit about that bill and why it is so important for students and faculty members in Tennessee? What are some of the things that the law did? So the Campus Uh, Free Speech uh, Act passed
3: in Tennessee, SB 723, is really a landmark piece of legislation uh, because it does so much right. Um, You know, uh, and and it came about with a lot of people's hard work, Uh, Senator uh, Doug Overbay, uh, and Representative Eddie Smith, uh, State Representatives Martin Daniel and and and, and John Reagan uh, launched the conversation last year about free speech on campus in Tennessee. And what it ended up resulting in is a bill that 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 we, you know, couldn't sing the praises of more if we tried. Uh, it's a bill that uh, prohibits public institutions in Tennessee from quarantining speech to free speech zones. It's a bill that. S- Locks in the Supreme Court's definition of peer-on-peer harassment, uh, a definition that uh, really makes sure that schools have the ability to respond to to, to discriminatory harassment without infringing on students' free speech rights. Uh, I can't emphasize how important that is because that's probably the most common form of speech codes that we see uh, on on college campuses. It prohibits schools from distributing. Uh, f- Student activity fees uh, in a discriminatory basis based on uh, the recipient organizations' uh, political uh, positions. Um, it, uh, it it it. it you know, it accomplishes so uh, much for students. It prevents some of the disinvitations that we're seeing by prohibiting universities from canceling invitations uh, to speakers that were issued by students, student organizations or faculty. Um, so – and then lastly, it includes uh, a provision that, that protects uh, uh, academic freedom as well. So uh, really an impressive uh, bill – Uh, all the way around. And it was gratifying to see it get so much bipartisan support.
2: Yeah. In our press release, we say the bill passed with overwhelming bipartisan support in the Tennessee House of Representatives by a vote of 85 to 7 and prevailed on a unanimous 30 to 0 vote in the Senate. Uh, I think one point that you missed there is that it also requires institutions to adopt policies consistent with the University of Chicago's free speech policy statement, which we've discussed before on this podcast. And I want to you know, pick your brain a little bit on that last provision that you were talking about relating to academic freedom. In our press release, we note that protects faculty from being punished for speech in the classroom unless the speech is both not reasonably germane to the subject matter of the class as broadly construed and uh, comprises a substantial portion of classroom instruction. We've gotten a little bit of pushback on that from some people who are concerned that might be an abridgment of faculty academic freedom rights. How are they wrong? Well, I think they're wrong
3: for a few reasons. Uh, f- the first uh, reason is that uh, it provides absolute statutory safe harbor for any classroom speech that's at all germane to the topic of the class. Um, and then, second,
2: and German just is a fancy even word for related relevant, to the topic. Relevant of the
3: and, and and broadly construed, which I think is really important because you know literature classes you know often tie into current events when comparing the literature and how it applies. So I mean I think it's important that it says that. Um, but the second thing is that it also provides a safe harbor for. Classroom speech that isn't germane to the class that only loses its protection if it uses up a substantial amount of of class time, and quite frankly, that's appropriate and, and largely already uh, the law uh, of the land when these cases get to litigation. Because you know, when you, if you're a student and you are paying tuition to be you know to be taught math, you expect your professor to be teaching math and to not be spending a tremendous amount of time on unrelated, irrelevant topics. And, you know, uh, accreditors of, of higher education look at that as well. So so, uh, so that that's the first reason why I think it's really a good step in the right direction. But the other thing I would note is it doesn't require institutions to take action against speech that doesn't meet either of those two criteria either. So there's no reading of this where it actually prescribes any uh, classroom speech at all of any faculty uh, faculty member. And I think that's why we saw uh, Professor John K. Wilson uh, talk about the bill in the, his AAUP uh, blog post, talking about how it really is a very solid step in the right direction. I don't have it in front of me, so I can't quote him directly.
1: I got it. He says, quote, Tennessee's law seems to be the best ever enacted. Uh, there's no denying this is a real advance for campus free speech in Tennessee. Uh, Wilson also goes on to to point out, as I'm going to quote from him again, "...the hard work of protecting free speech on campus can't be accomplished only with legislation. There's a danger that such laws will encourage further legislative meddling uh, that threatens free speech and academic freedom on campus." But as Joe, as you pointed out in a a very thoughtful uh, response to this criticism uh, on our website, uh, you write that fire agrees there too. That our, our work defending free speech on campus doesn't end uh, when a school earns a green light rating or a state passes a helpful law. Uh, that we're, we are there uh, to make sure legislators get it right. Uh, and if campuses, uh, legislators, students, faculty, administrators don't get it right, we're there too.
3: Yeah, it, you know, it's 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 not easy work because we're trying to get legislators across the country to recognize that free speech on campus could use a hand from them. Um, but that doesn't mean that every idea that they have is going to be a good one or the right one. And you know, a good amount of my time is spent taking the original ideas, the first drafts, and talking to legislators about the way uh, they can be improved to make sure that we get all of the con law lines exactly right uh, in a way that is really helpful to, to, to free speech on, on campus. because it's, It's easy to make mistakes here, so we have to be careful. I want to get in one last point on this
1: academic freedom uh, question. Um, I think that Joe and I and and FIRE would certainly agree that shared governance, institutional autonomy, uh, faculty, uh, norms of academic freedom... uh, are very rightly skeptical of legislative interference. But what I think makes this bill different, in addition to the reasons uh, that Joe outlined just in the statutory phrasing and the the broad safe harbors, uh, also just thinking back to how this law would have helped many of the faculty members uh, whose rights have been violated, that fire has fought on behalf of uh, in my 10 years at FIRE. And, and Joe's blog entry lists uh, quite a few of them. Patty Adler uh, in Colorado, Don Towater uh, in New Jersey, uh, Hyung Il-Jung, James Tuttle, Elizabeth Ito, Andrea Cornette. I mean, there's a long list of faculty members who really would have benefited from having a law like this on the books. And, you know, norms are one thing, statutory law is another. And if we could have said, Actually, punishing Patty Adler for what she taught in her sociology class not only violated academic freedom, just as a professional norm, but also violated the law. That would have been powerful. That would have really helped.
0: Yeah, and I think that one of the changes I've seen in the last few years at Fire—well, I mean, in my last few years at Fire—but you know, on campus, um, that has distressed me um, more than almost anything is the growing impact um, of. Demands for censorship and the the campus climate on the the germane speech of faculty in the classroom because I think once that's fair game, you really you know the core purpose of a university is threatened. So uh, you know I think that this is so important in that right. regard. You know,
3: and and I think that shared governance is really important to be able to negotiate lines that really should be up for debate. Uh, that the stakeholders should be able to figure out those lines together but i don't see any legitimate reason why anyone should be able to negotiate away the the most basic core principles of of academic freedom and that shouldn't be up for negotiation you shouldn't have to in your collective bargaining agreement think that uh, that locking that in is so important that you have to give up something else in a trade off um, you should always be able to know that as a matter of law you're going to have this kind of academic academic freedom And you know fires always open to hearing input from those in the academic freedom community uh, partner organizations about ways we can improve uh, on those efforts because it's another area where getting the lines right really does. Uh, matter so this is going to be teamwork across the board to get this get this done, but but we're really thrilled how it unfolded in Tennessee and I hope other states uh, go down that to go down that
2: path. Um, but if I can have a moment to also talk about some of the other yeah, but you know, I want to ask you quickly: the Tennessee law does this affect private institutions in the same way like the Leonard law does? In no, California? this is only only affects public institutions, um, and uh,
3: and and I, I think that these values of free speech and academic freedom translate nicely in private university settings too. So I hope that universities, private universities in Tennessee, see one year down the road, two years down the road, that these reforms have not made the sky fall in the, their, uh, in their sister and
2: brother you know public institutions across the state and, and and mimic those changes. It might be a competitive advantage for public universities because now there is you know codified protections for professors at public universities that they might not have at private universities. so it might be a draw from some of the more distinguished professorate to you know, go and do their research or do their teaching at, at some of these public universities. It would be interesting to see how that plays out because we have seen private universities violate these principles of academic freedom. I'm reminded of a case at Brandeis uh, with Professor Donald Hindley, who was a nearly 50-year veteran of teaching, who was um, declared guilty of racial harassment and had a monitor placed in his classroom um, for criticizing the word "wetbacks," just using the word "wetbacks" in the context of his Latin American politics course,
1: explaining where it where it came from, and, yeah, and provide, like explaining what why it is a slur and where it you know where it came from.
2: Yeah, incredibly germane to his Latin American studies and politics class. So. You know,
3: I had what was a constructive, but to me a little bit. Uh, frustrating conversation with a uh, faculty member who has been a longtime kind of ally of, of, of fires. And, and he was concerned about a rash of bills that have been introduced that he thought jeopardized some academic freedom. Um, and quite frankly, in ways that I, I actually agreed with him that the initial drafts, the original language that was introduced, the fire didn't play a a role in writing, you know, had some of those, raised some of those concerns that he was raising. And he said to me that the more these legislatures legislate, if they continue along these lines, uh, it might push me from public institutions to requiring myself to only consider private institutions to teach at. This Tennessee bill really flips that script by getting those lines exactly right. If you have a choice to teach in a Tennessee private institution without those protections or one with those protections, um, I can't think of a rational case for why you would want to be in a place where you don't have the law also on
2: your side. So I hope that other states really do follow the Tennessee model. Yeah, and we should note that not every bill introduced in a state legislature is one that fires helped with. So, you know, I, we sometimes, I'm the director of communications, we field media requests from uh, journalists who think that every time a legislature seeks to legislate on a free speech on campus issue, it's of fires doing. This this isn't the case, right, Joe? Although we do seek to help and bring these these laws in line with constitutional you know, principles.
3: We're a two-person legislative and policy uh, unit here. And the more legislators get interested in this issue, I think it's a largely positive thing that we see more bills introduced. But, uh, but you know, they're not always, uh, you know, Copied and pasted from the best language that that we've that we've seen, and we don't have the bandwidth to correct and work with legislators on all of them. But we try as often as we possibly can um, to help out to make sure that it's the the finished law is. Exactly right on those on the on those constitutional lines uh, when we have those opportunities. So um,
2: we're proud of the track record we've had so far. You're punching above your weight, and you've got some other victories in Colorado and Unfortunately, Utah. Unfortunately, right? my weight is increasing,
3: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so uh, we'll have to work on that this summer. Um, but yeah, we did have some nice victories in Colorado and Utah uh, as well, where uh, those legislatures passed. Uh, uh, bills to eliminate uh, free speech zones on uh, on campus. So while those bills are narrowly focused on one form of campus censorship, it's a really prominent form of campus censorship. One in TED campuses. No. That have these right that we can that we're eliminating one state at a time, um, you know. So so in Colorado, that was uh, largely uh, thanks to a bipartisan group led by Senators uh, Tim Neville, uh, Representative uh, Jeff Bridges. Uh, and, and and Stephen Humphrey, but also Representative Dave Williams. And, and they worked really hard together in a bipartisan way to get that across the finish line. And in Utah, uh, Representative Kim Coleman uh, worked really hard to get that done uh, too. And we're seeing that there is really broad consensus across the political spectrum that quarantining speech with free speech zones is wrong, and it's a good place for legislators to start because people on all parts of the political spectrum agree, and it doesn't, uh, it, you know, bring in some of the harder, you know, questions that we have to answer. So, um, when dealing with getting the right lines in, uh, in, in 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 legislation, so we're really glad that you know, if you look at the map right now. Virginia has statutorily eliminated free speech zones. Uh, Utah and Colorado, as we mentioned, now Tennessee with its bill did. Missouri uh, did so uh, as well. Arizona's already done it, and Kentucky legislature tacked on a, a, a provision in a more controversial uh, bill about religious liberty on, on campus this year too. So uh, more and more states are are thinking of doing it, and there's now legislation pending and. Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, and New York, uh, to do to do the same, and uh, and you know, and just the other day, Louisiana's uh, second chamber passed a more comprehensive uh, bill on on free speech on campus that also includes a provision to eliminate free speech zones. Uh, that uh, that is going to conference committee and then probably to the governor's desk in a couple of weeks. So. Um, so it's starting to happen and you know it's it's a really positive development. Uh, hopefully, the rest of the states
2: follow suit or that Congress will, will will pick up where they've left off. Yeah. Will, did you want to jump in here? I see you're leaning toward your microphone.
1: I just wanted to make sure that we, I think it was the San Francisco Chronicle, that we recognize the San Francisco Cisco Chronicle's good uh, editorial from last week, I think, in support of a, a anti-free speed zone bill in California that has stalled out for now,
3: but we will work hard to resuscitate it soon.
2: Yeah. Journalists have been really good in, in and I think they have a, just a natural bias. Yeah, they free speech. And-
3: the arguments against the free speech zone bill are quite frankly serious stretches. And
2: that's being nice. And
3: and and, 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 and are you talking and, about
2: the bill in California? I'm you talking
3: know? about all of them. But 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 you know, in in, in California, um, some of the schools argued that it would cost them millions of dollars, which uh, was. Uh,
2: Millions of dollars uh, to comply with the Constitution. Right. <laughs> right. It, I arguing. mean that's – you know, I, I would say that it's laughable,
3: and that, but that's being charitable. I mean really uh, the truth of the matter is the bills largely codify what the case law already says while providing students a broader enforcement mechanism if schools don't do what they're already legally supposed to be doing. So the idea that coming into compliance will cost them money uh, is uh, – is absurd on its face. And we look forward to addressing that argument uh, with legislators uh, in the coming year. Uh, The California bill had cleared two committees, the Senate Judiciary Committee and the Senate Education Committee unanimously uh, before it stalled in the uh, Senate Appropriations Committee over the claims that it would cost millions of dollars. So uh, we hope to to educate the committee between now and next year. Uh, so that we don't uh, have that same fate.
2: Yeah, it's going to be a tough argument for these schools to make in court when they get sued over their free speech zones because these schools always lose the free speech zone lawsuits and it always costs them money. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, to say, that's, to say that their argument is has any merit it, is being it, charitable. It would cost
3: them less if they came into compliance to begin with. Yep. Which is, I guess, the point that we're trying to make both through the legislation and with all of our work to, ref- to with schools to re- re- know, to work on their uh, on their speech codes that, that that Sam and others in our office lead. Because, uh, you know, a little bit of preventative work by being compliant with the First Amendment goes a long way.
2: Mm-hmm. I want to close up here because we're running out of time and we're running into the lunch hour here at FIRE. Uh, just by, you know, ask, going around the table here and, and quickly asking what you guys are – are looking toward as we head into the summer and then again into the fall 2017 semester on campus. Uh, Will, I'm going to start with you, put oh you on God. the spot yeah. here.
1: Listen, my summer does not stretch any farther than June 5th, next Monday, which is my wife's due date for our second child. Congratulations. So I, I've got a little bit of tunnel vision right now. Um, thinking about... The rest of the summer, we've got a really uh, exciting uh, trio of legal interns in the office now. Uh, Our undergraduate interns arrive next week, uh, so we are going to be hard at work preparing materials, uh, conducting legal research, and uh, really getting uh, all of our various uh, initiatives sharp. Uh, and ready to deploy (laughs) when uh, school is back in session in September. The summer always goes much too fast. What I would like uh, next semester, what I'm going to be working hard to bring about is a greater recognition of the importance of uh, debate, uh, respectful dissent, uh, and uh, a uh, positive evaluation of the fact that free speech protects all of us, uh, not just the speech that is loathsome or marginal or discredited or hateful, uh, but our right to call out that speech, too. You know, I I want to uh, uh, work hard next year, and so we're sitting in these chairs in May of 2018. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we're sitting in these chairs next year thinking, that was a really breakthrough year. We passed a lot of good legislation. We won some court cases. And most importantly, we have students uh, from across the political spectrum saying, you know what, free speech is, is a real friend of ours. That mm-hmm. would be great.
2: Mm-hmm. And I should say, after you're mentioning our intern program, that I'm a beneficiary of that program. It's a wonderful program that mix- mixes education with uh, real work that, we, that helps fire. And if there's anyone listening, I actually know that we have a lot of listeners that are in college or in law school. You know, keep a lookout. Follow our website uh, for open application season yeah. for those those internships because it's 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 a great education. It's a great opportunity to work on the ground to defend civil rights on college campuses. And many of our interns go on to work at FIRE. I am an example of that.
1: Like me, I am uh, an example of that. I was a FIRE legal intern way back in the dusty days of two thousand four.
2: So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Will's been here a long time. He's seen a lot. Sam, I want to turn to you next. What are you thinking? heading into the summer
0: well going into the summer I'm really thinking uh, looking forward to some big due process initiatives that we're going to be um, undertaking in the fall and while I realize that's a little bit outside the uh the range of this podcast, you know, due process is an important issue on campus and it intersects with the issue of free speech because, you know, what happens when you are accused of violating a speech code on campus? Do you actually get to be heard in a meaningful way and to defend yourself and to to make the arguments you think are best going to help you? Or do you get sort of summarily thrown out without a hearing, without an ability to present evidence or make arguments. Um, And so that is actually an important part of fire's work, too, one that does intersect with the issue of free speech and one that we are going to be undertaking some really big initiatives um, with regard to in the fall that I'm going to be doing a lot of work on over the summer um, and I'm very excited about.
2: Well, stay tuned for our listeners to what Sam's working on. I, I, I'm privy to some of the projects <laughs> you're working on. They're really exciting and I think um, will be very helpful to students, to legislators, uh, to the general public in understanding the importance of due process rights on college campuses. Joe, I want to end with you and give you the last word. What are you looking toward in the summer?
3: Uh, ice cream
2: um, after just talking about but, your weight joe you, you Well, know, i told you it was going to be a challenge <laughs>
3: barbecue too um, but uh, but the uh, the things i'm looking forward to in the office are there are a lot uh, you know uh, we have recently added uh, tyler coward to our uh, legislative and policy team so it's going to be really exciting uh, working uh, directly with him
2: on he getting our he was previously working up. on in our student network
3: uh yep and uh, and i'm really excited to bring him in the fold um, but uh, we still have three states with legislation pending on free speech uh, this year, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and New York. So we're going to uh, see those uh, th- uh, through to their conclusion. Um, but uh, the summer is a good opportunity for me to refocus on some of the things that are happening at the federal level. At j- just a few weeks ago— um, representative uh, Phil Rowe from Tennessee introduced a resolution urging schools to eliminate free speech zones in Congress and you know and, and that was exciting and we had like one blog you know post on it which I think is a measure of just what, how much has been going on but to get to refocus again you know, on the fact that so many members of Con- earlier this summer, earlier this sorry this year, we had uh, Fire President Greg Lukianoff uh, testifying in front of the House Judiciary Committee, where several members of Congress relied on our work and Sam's work in particular, in Spotlight to talk about these issues on campus, um, and. You know, we get so much uh, contact from from members now asking us how they can help, and starting to actually have those conversations and, and turning the corner and putting those plans into action is going to be uh, is going to be really exciting. And, and those calls are bipartisan. I mean, I, I've had some really good conversations with people on all parts of the political spectrum about how we can work together on free speech on campus. So that's really uh, what I'm looking forward to is uh, is 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 thinking about. The ways we can bring these reforms not just to Tennessee and Colorado and Utah and those other states that we mentioned, but to everyone who's going to school at any institution, uh, public institution in in
2: in the United States. Yeah, well, given your work in Utah and Colorado and Tennessee, you'll be heading into the summer with some momentum. And so, we uh, and I know I speak for our listeners here. We'll keep our fingers crossed on that front. Um, I just want to thank you all again for taking the time out of your busy Tuesday after Memorial Day to uh, join me on the podcast again. You're not you're not newbies on this, but I, I think you all bring interesting perspectives to the conversation. So thanks for joining us. Thank you, Praveen.
0: Thanks for having us. Thank you, Nico.
2: This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese, who is in the studio with us right now. So you want to say hello, Aaron? Aaron. Yeah, Everyone, clap for Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215 315 If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Reviews really do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thank you all for listening.